hamster with a blunt penknife would do it quicker. Welcome back to uh, Hamster with a Blunt Pen Knife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. Uh, I'm here today. I'm going to go full on Amy Pond and say I'm here today with my boys, not my poncho boys. <laughs> I'm here with the deliriously gorgeous Simon Hart. Say hello, Simon. Hello. <laughs> and the uh, and I can say this to you, Fraser, because someone told me the other day they've got an accent crush on you. Oh. The beautifully accented Fraser Gregory. Hello, Fraser. All right. Oh, <laughs> what did you just say? I said all right in Geordie. Oh, thank you very much. Can you do like the whole episode in like really thick Geordie, like really thick? <laughs> yes, but we don't cover subtitles, so that might be a little bit difficult. I want to say something, but I don't want to offend you. Because <laughs> like, I'm like, I won't be convinced that you're a Geordie until I hear you say... Dog's funny, don't he? <laughs> That's from Mark of the Rani. What? That's from Mark of the Rani. Dog's funny, don't he? Straight to pick up to Toby. Oh, <laughs> don't talk about that episode. Will you one day do Mark of the Rani with me? <laughs> we'll talk about that off, mate. Okay. All right. Um. Okay, well, we're here for Invasion of Time, episode three. Um, I don't think we could have ended on a more thrilling point than Gallifrey being invaded. Something that happens with alarming frequency in the new series. Are you gentlemen ready? I am. been ready. Okay, then let's go in five, four, three, two, one. Off we go. Um, so I have a, a question for you both, uh, stepping into episode three, and that is, you could perhaps say that the um, the gulf between the conception of the Vardans and the realisation of the Vardans is wide. Do you think this is like um, the most disappointing realisation of a monster in Doctor Who, i.e. it's just a load of foil being waved about? Gentlemen, this is no yeah. um, you know me, I'll I can suspend my disbelief on the most ridiculous things and then not on the most mundane things. So But I'm, is there a limit? Is there a limit to that? No, I mean but five aliens, it's you know what, it adds to the charm of the story though. I think this isn't a story that you come into. Um certainly this is what I got from my last week, it's not a story you come into and take seriously. You've got to appreciate the humour in it, and part of that is the <laughs> you know the screens at the people. You know, you, it, for me, there's a lot of episodes of Doctor Who you've got to look in a certain way. You know, when when we talked about the Space Museum, I said you know look at this as as a comedy, look at it as a very Douglas Adams um, style story. Um, when I watch the Happiness Patrol, I look at it as a as a stage play, not like you know. Um, as if like no set off actually outside I look at it as like a, a stage play and it helps with the, the acting and some of the dialogue and whatnot then with this one you've just got to look you've got to watch and you've just got to laugh and enjoy it for but, being, and it's a big it. but yeah I don't think they're supposed to be funny I don't think they're supposed to be charming I think they're supposed to be scary that was the idea was that these were like you know <laughs> these monsters are invading Gallifrey you know 
No, I think I think this is a funny story. I think we've had a lot of dialogue so far. Um, I know some of it was unintentional, like the Red Wolf in episode one, but a lot of the dialogue is really funny in the way that Tom Baker is pitching his performance. You know, he's, he is mad in a sort of eccentric way. That's the way he's playing. He's, he's, he's turned to the dark side. Is very sort of eccentric. He is in sort of um, coming at it at a very sinister angle. It's a very sort of eccentric angle. It scares the life out of me. What about you, Sai? Well, I, I think the Bartons are <laughs> almost deliberately crap, to be honest. <laughs> because I think that's the idea, to show that Gallifrey could be invaded by creatures that are rubbish like this. Um, so I think it, I find it incredibly funny when they turn from the tinfoil into men in green suits who are the least threatening. Yeah. There's even a line, isn't there? There's a line there where he says, aren't they disappointed? Oh, they're disappointed yeah. or something like that, isn't it? Script <laughs> knows that the Vardens are rubbish. Well, okay. Yes. So I want to I want to extrapolate what you two are saying to me here. So in order to appreciate the invasion of time, I have to one go in imagining it's a comedy, and two go in imagining that the monsters are deliberately crap. Yeah. 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 Okay. It, it works better. Well, on those terms, I freaking love this story. <laughs> well, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think as Graham Williams said in the interview that I pointed to in one of the earlier episodes, they wanted, they conceived them sort of like balls of light, almost, I think, like maybe the Magara would appear next year, where they're sort of slightly different and would have been sort of a little more sinister, but they couldn't do that with the constraints of where they have to record. So they've got to come up with something else. So you get fluttering tinfoil CSO'd onto the screen instead. Can you imagine the special effects people doing that? Like just literally waving tinfoil about and going, oh, really? (gasps) <gasps> oh my word, look at that room. Do you wish to see me? Look at oh, that room. That is, that is absolutely gorgeous. That's a stunning piece of design, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But I think, going back to the Vardens, mm-hmm. part of the problem is um, if Dick Mills had just done a sound effect that wasn't modulated tinfoil as well, mm-hmm. then it might have worked slightly better. But the two effects together, it just doesn't, it all just makes you think. Yeah, there's no money, and they're just shaking a bit of tinfoil here. Because I can think yeah. of... Oh, sorry, Fraser, go on. So, before I rewatched this, I thought I was going to come into this commentary being very much defending this on the basis that we have it. It's been made. It was so many production problems, budget problems, script problems, all the rest of it. Let's just be thankful that thing actually got made, and we got the six-pot story to went series on. Then you enjoy it. Then I enjoyed it. So I think, yeah... Um, they gave us something, didn't they? You know, they could have just not given us anything, or we could have had the green-suited Vardens from from the start. The try, come on, let's give them. Well, and can you imagine if they'd have gone with the original story for the end of this season, which was Wembley Stadium full of cats? Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that is. So it's always intrigued me what that story is actually about because we've only ever had that description of yeah. the killer cats filling Wembley Stadium. And I think they've, they've got so far as to actually design the cats' costumes. There is a, a costume design somewhere out there that I've seen a few times. Oh, wow. So it got fairly far before they realised, oh, no, actually, this isn't what we're expecting. And 
Um, quick, Graham and Tony, we've got to come up with something that we can actually make. Well, and what you said, Fraser, there about like they had a go. They had a go, but they went for something massively ambitious, didn't they? Like it's not like they they said, okay, well we have, we've got this amount of money in the kitty, so we're going to do black drapes and you know a nice you know quiet scary story. No, we're going to do the invasion of Gallifrey on four yeah. pence, you know. I mean, yeah, that this is a a comedy story, mate. We have just got two really good dramatic scenes here. We've had um, Mila and Rodan mm. having a very tense discussion, and we've just had the scene with Barusa and the Doctor, where Barusa is a transparent, good old-fashioned democracy. Yeah. Do you think uh, the the contrast between Leela and Rodan is deliberate to show just how like what a strong character she is? Yes. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thanks, <laughs> Joe. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's um, the classic Graham Williams era um, dynamic, isn't it, of book learning versus instinct and learning by doing. Yeah. And I think this is one of the things that is cut. He comes back to as a theme all the way through his years that the Doctor wins because. He's had the experience, and particularly the first Romana can come in and know everything, but she hasn't got the experience to actually deal with what what she's done. She might be incredibly clever, but throw her at a Shrivenzal or something, and she just goes to pieces because she's not used to dealing with anything quite like that. And what I really love is you've got the contrast between the two of them, and it's Leela's kind of savviness with action that gets them back into the Sistel, and it's Rodan's smarts that helps him in like episode five. So it's not like, like both women contribute, but in really different ways. Yeah. I think it's interesting that they do take Mila out of this hotel and put her into her home environment. Yeah. It's kind of like, yeah, so if we take Rodan and put her in where Leela's comfortable, Leela um, thrives, if we take, <laughs> but if we take Leela and put her still in the gallery, Leela still thrives in there. There's no sort of like um, point where like Leela's the fish out of water or anything. She rises to all the challenges. She's you know sneaking around those really tight corridors and that, um, um, Leela on Gallifrey. Have you ever listened to the audios, Fraser? Of the, the no, I haven't. I haven't. She is amazing in that, and you're right. Like she fits in on Gallifrey, despite the fact she doesn't fit in on Gallifrey at all. Like, yeah. Brilliantly. I think one of the things I like about the character of Leela um, is that she's probably the first companion that we've seen to actually get a bit of an arc. If you take where she is in Face of Evil, um, you know, goes into the TARDIS for the Doctor, and if you look around this story, there's a definite progression in her character and what she's learned and how she's developed to the point where, you know, come the end of the story, she is running around, you know, Gallifrey, she is rallying the troops, she is you know, dispatching Sontarans, all the rest of it, which you wouldn't have had to start with, which is very beautiful. You know, so in that respect, it is a good story for Yvonne because it shows, all yes, things from the source of development. And obviously, the, the manner in the, of the departure is lacking. Yeah, even Louise Jameson says herself, doesn't she? I, I would have rather have died than gone out. Yeah. 
this way. Wasn't it refreshing to get outside then? I know we're in a quarry, but it's so nice to just get outside for a bit. Yeah, it suddenly feels less claustrophobic. I think the scenes in the capital are very interior heavy, and this is the first time we're actually, we've got a different um, landscape to deal with. And it be, yeah, it, and when we meet um, all the outsiders, it's their lifestyle is obviously very different to the other people on Gallifrey, which is a nice contrast. And they can do that thing that they can't really do in sets, and that's like pull right back and have a vastness on the screen, you know. Yes. So it just it's other it feels very especially in episode three. Normally the location work is like episode one, isn't it? They they do it all. So that's yeah. Cool. So it's it's mixing it up a bit. Again, we'll I like that they put, yeah. put the orange filter over as well, so it looks a bit different and a bit alien. We just need that shot of the Citadel, don't we? You could have it here, yeah. you know? Just in the background. It's a bird sky, isn't it, of Gallifrey? Yeah, right. What is it he says in the TV movie? I meet your storm, but the sky above us was dancing with lights. Purple, greens, brilliant yellows. <gasps> These shoes! I, oh god man Lila, i love it when she beats up men i shouldn't say that but i do <laughs> i think louise james would like that as well <laughs> she just wanted to do it with tom baker doesn't she just sit down over there and go oh no oh. <laughs> Bless I'm her. running out of smarties in my plastic capsule. We feel I know. I really do. But this is so like cliche science fiction. The outsiders are all hairy and like they've all got fur. Yeah, wearing furs and yeah. spears. This is what Rossi Davis is talking about when he talks about Planet Zog, you know, and the cliches of science fiction. He was never gonna do any any of this in series one of the new series, was he? Like I doubt if you ever no, all headbands and long hair. Well, That's a look. Yeah. look. Oh, here's the smarties. Uh, here's a smarties look. There we go. They look a bit like Mentos, don't they? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, she wouldn't have been a good companion, would she? No. Do you understand the need for shelter? No, of course Maybe she should have died. Sorry. It's interesting when you watch when she does have a little moment of watching in a sobbing heap. It's it's one of the other savages that that comfort her. Yeah, that's the prettiest woman they've seen in ages. No wonder. <laughs> Who is that man? I recognise that, that man. Um, that's Max Faulkner. And you'll remember him from the um, Android invasion. He's the android who falls off the cliff oh, at the start. Who's some... walking along in the jagged motion, which I'm doing now, but you can't see. That's marvellous. <laughs> Very authentic. And he's got he's got a great Dudley Simpson score as well, hasn't he? When he goes off the yeah. cliff, it's like... Yeah. Ah! <laughs> Oh, such a just a Do you think? Do you think that's like a good approach? Then, if you can't always realise the ambition of the script, then to just give great like writing to decent actors, 
and and have have you kind of have the worth of what's on screen there rather than um, sort of the plasticky set. Oh, God. Yeah, you can rely on your actors then to, to sell what's going on, I think, and make make the drama out of something that might be slightly disappointing on screen. And again, you've got Dudley Simpson working overtime, I think, on this story as well to make it dramatic and exciting all the way through. I mean, I'm not always. I'm not going to suggest that Doctor Who can't always realise its concepts, but I think uh, the musical score, the sound effects, and the acting very often mask what sometimes the budget can't provide. You know. Yeah, and I think the there's always a feeling that um, the BBC could never quite realise Doctor Who how they would have loved to have realised Doctor Who. But I think they relied on the audience, particularly in the 60s and 70s, to um, sort of use their imagination to to see what they were trying to achieve all the way through. And I think there's quite a lot of that that Doctor Who would, as we know, grab your imagination at an early age and you'd see all these things. You totally believe what you're seeing, even though sort of as a four or five year old, you might not be um sort of um able to distinguish what was good or bad but you'd be able to see something that just tipped your imagination sort of over the edge something that you hadn't seen before and i think that as doctor who fans i think if we ever lose the ability to to see doctor who in that way and be excited by it that way and be excited by the concept of the story and and get sort of involved with oh, well, it's a really poor production and this didn't work and this didn't work. And the Doctor's left the TARDIS wearing his scarf, but when he comes back into the TARDIS and his scarf's on the hat stand and that kind of nitpickery, I think, sort of almost, although it can be fun, quite often tips into um, just misery, <laughs> to be honest. It's the sort of people that create those nitpicky books, isn't it? The, you know, I'm like, what pleasure do you get from this? You know? No, it's something Jason touched on, wasn't it? On his Mysterious Planet. Yeah. Um, well, the, the, there's two types of book. Yeah, two types of fan. Yeah. Yeah. But do you think then, if Doctor Who had like a massive... Say, say it was being filmed in America at this point, yeah? And it was all being shot on film and it had sophisticated effects work do you think it would have as much ambition and as much imagination? No. Oh. <laughs> I think, you know, one of the things, there's various things I love about Dr. Hill, and one of the things is, um, you know, that was the budget constraints that was made by the BBC, um, and it pushed people to do things that, you know, if you had a big budget, yeah, you would have had, you know, can you imagine if we made this now, we'd have CGI, and all over the place and whatnot. But you know, one of the beauties of Doctor Who is that people have always had to be inventive, and that you know, stress of having to create something breeds creativity. And Doctor Who's always been a breeding ground for creativity. You know, people come into the show, spend a couple of years as script editor or producer, or you know, direct a few scenes, go off and do other things. You know, so it, that's always been one of the, the beautiful things about Doctor Who is that. You know, and, 
that were of, of BBC and talent. Look at some of the yeah, stories. Yeah, it's almost like the, the learning ground for people at the start of their careers a lot of the time who've yeah. gone on to much bigger things. So someone like um, Jim Atchison, who did fantastic design, costume design work for late John Pertwee and early Tom Baker, who went on to win Oscars for his costume designs in Hollywood. And I think he learned all his techniques by not having any money and just using his imagination and thinking, well, we can't do this, but if we use this, we could, yeah, we can make something that will, um, that will work. And sometimes it is just what will work. Um, and then you get someone like June Hudson who just comes in with her wild imagination and her costuming is just flamboyant and amazing. We're going to make the guards look like the Sydney Opera House. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, I think Janet Fielding says in one of the commentaries, in one of her rare complimentary moments for the series, um, that you know you can give a designer loads of money and they'll they'll produce something that's quite bland, but give them a Doctor Who story to do with a tiny budget and watch them create an entire world. Like it's 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 a fertile ground, isn't it? And look at some of the Doctor Who stories that were created like in desperation. Sit your death. Was done in like a weekend, wasn't it? Yeah, well, by the same writer, David Acknew, <laughs> coming back to save Doctor Who at, um, at the end of the, this series and back in season 17. Someone please make the joke. I'm waiting for someone to make the joke about David Agnew and the guy who lives next door, whose name is... Oh, okay. Oh, Robert oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Is it Norman Ashby? No, it's Guy Leopold, of course. <laughs> oh, Robin Bland. <laughs> well, that's the name I was going for. Thank you. <laughs> oh, here's a. Oh. Just make you sound crap there, Joe. I'm so sorry. Oh, don't worry. Don't worry. I think that was such a beautiful conversation we just had there. So it doesn't matter that my joke sunk. Yeah. Oh, right, going back to the design, this Gallifrey feels like a whole. It feels like a planet and a culture. And I know, Joe, you keep pointing out the weird sculptures and artwork yeah. that they've got, but it feels like this is a world that's lived in. Oh, for sure. Unlike some other Gallifreys. It feels like seen. they had like a tone meeting, doesn't it? I know they, I know they didn't have a tone meeting, but it feels like everyone's on the same page, doesn't it? Yes. In terms of like costume design and sets. And everything. Anyway, maybe there was just some very idiosyncratic designer that was creating all those plastic chairs and things. You know, you never know. That's what Kellner's doing on his days off. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, he goes to the art gallery, doesn't he, later on? He does, yeah. Mm -hmm. Speaking of Kellner, we've had this the shift now, haven't we, in this story? We've had um, sort of sly Kellner who seems to be spying on people, who seems to have designs on actually the presidency himself. And now we've got Kellner the Quislin. He is... Oh, Settling his scores, isn't he? And getting rid of all the people he's made the lists of for years, all of their dissidents, right out, off he, you go. He's, he's very Araya Heap, isn't he? And, and oh, he's an excellency. And, yeah. and let me get a list. And oh, he's so creepy now. And that oil factor. Yeah. He's gone, yeah, he's gone full fascist now, hasn't he? Yeah, he getting rid of any, anyone who, who disagrees with him. He's and this is something later, that, isn't he? Sorry, mm -hmm. no, when, when, when he's got the, the big Finnish gallop. Sorry, <laughs> go on, you no, go, you go, you go. Now, I'm going to say this is something the big Finnish gallop always comes back to is that 
underneath Gallifrey, there's always oh, this right. simmering tension that um, they all absolutely hate each other <laughs> and have spent decades and decades hating each other. And it's only going to take one tiny event or, or one big event like the invasion of Gallifrey to bring all of those simmering tensions and hatreds out of everyone and and fight against each other. You talk about oily. What about or Inquisitor Darkle in Gallifrey? <laughs> That's true. But like later on, um, he's at his oiliest, isn't he? When he's got the muscle behind him, he's got the Sontarans around and he's just like, oh God, he's, I mean, he's wonderful, but he's... Ship the legions, he just goes, right, it's not the foil anymore, it's the potatoes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and in between that, he's shifted his allegiance back to the doctor again, hasn't he? So... Yeah, doesn't he say at the end? Isn't he, isn't he still about at the end? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He... That's all right, I'll have him <laughs> That's shot. That's a great line. <laughs> Do you know what? I can't remember the cliffhanger to this episode. It's coming up, I think. Yeah, I don't think we're far off, are we? Is it Andred going to shoot the Doctor? It is, yes. It is, yes, it is. Sorry, Andred's trousers are very tight. (laughs) Very, very tight. When we're talking about Leela's costume, you know, Andred's trousers are... You know, they're, they're, they're not quite David Bowie's Labyrinth, but they're not far off. Where, you know, what's that website where you can get all kinds of things that are Doctor Who themed? Can you buy those trousers? I might get some. <laughs> you need a full white shirt to go with it. Oh, it off, yeah, kind of friends like a flowing pirate shirt, don't they? Yeah. Well, remember the assassin? He wore one in that as well, yeah. didn't he? Exactly. Oh, bless him. He's trying to put that bloody prop on Kane. Oh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> I'm glad they didn't stick with this lighting in the TARDIS. I find it a bit weird. I quite like the shadows. I quite like it being a bit more moody than usual. And mind you, I, I whinge a lot when it's really bright, so I just whinge. Yeah, so you're never happy. No, no, sorry. It's a bit of a lacklustre. Yeah. The hang of that one, isn't it? But when you got five in one story, one's bound. Yeah, one's got to fall down, hasn't it? It's not too bad. I mean, the doctor's There's a nice close-up on his face there as Tom realizes he forgot to tell Andrew what the plan was. Oops! Now he's gonna. Now he thinks that I'm really selling Gallifrey out. And we're back. At, um, um, like you know, had this cliffhanger come at the end of episode two, where he was still behaving villainous, we'd be like, "Well, why do we give a shit?" But now he's uh, yeah. being very doctory again. So. Yeah, Ooh. now you're worried that the doctor's in danger. Did so, you see yeah. who the production unit manager was there? John Nathan Turner. <gasps> yeah, he's holding the keys to the budget <laughs> and getting this show on the on screen. So I bet he was there behind the scenes, like making allies and things like I I will be the producer of this show. He's he's doing his Kellner, making a list, right? He said, This guy's <laughs> not coming back, is he? <laughs> no, no, we're not having him. No, too silly. Yeah. <laughs> He didn't bring me a cup of tea. 